0: I'm John Krall. Today on No Limits, we're going to talk about the problems that result when prisoners are released and they don't have health care coverage. We're going to talk about the cost to them and their lives and the cost for the rest of us. My guests are Beth Schwartzapfel of the Marshall Project and Jay Hancock of Kaiser Health News, both of whom have reported on the issue, and Linda Grove-Paul of Centerstone Behavioral Health. Please join the conversation. Call 866-476-3881. Email nolimits at WFYI.org. Find us on Facebook at WFYI. Track us down on Twitter at WFYI. Now, this news. Welcome to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the StatehouseFile dot com, and your host. America's prisons and jails are full of people dealing with mental illness, addiction, and other diseases. Inmates get treatment while they're incarcerated, but in many states, they lose that care when they're released. In their recent investigation, Out of Prison uncovered journalist Beth. Schwartz Zapfel of the Marshall Project and Jay Hancock of Kaiser Health News found that Medicaid for ex-prisoners saves lives and money, but millions of people are released without it. There are our guests this hour, along with Linda Grove-Paul, Vice President of Adult Services for Centerstone Behavioral Health in Indiana. Her agency is one that's on the front lines of providing mental health care to ex-inmates. The Collaborative Reporting Project also included NPR and Side Effects Public Media based here at WFYI. Side Effects' Jake Harper has the story of one ex-inmate in Indianapolis.
1: Prisons are full of people dealing with serious health problems. Mental illness, addiction, and other diseases are rampant in the correction system. Inmates can get treatment while they're incarcerated, but getting out often means losing health care. Some states are trying to get released prisoners onto Medicaid, but many ex-inmates are still left out. Jake Harper of Side Effects Media, Side Effects Public Media, spoke with one man in Indianapolis.
2: Ernest takes two drugs, lithium and an antipsychotic.
3: Well, I suffer from manic depression, and uh, I, uh, what caused my crime was a, uh, an acute, severe psychotic
2: episode. He's been trying to find a job. That and his crime are why he asked us to use just his middle name. In 1991, Ernest killed his two-year-old daughter. He thought God would stop him, like in the story of Abraham. The medication he got in prison stabilized him, and he served 24 years. Before he was paroled, he tried to get his insurance set up. It didn't work.
3: You know, I don't have a job. I don't have any money. How can I buy medication?
2: He got out of prison with a 30-day supply of his meds, unsure how he would get a refill. He worried about another psychotic episode, about hurting someone.
3: I made some impassioned calls to people saying, hey, I'm about to run out here. And uh, it's very important because my whole world comes crashing down if I'm not mentally stable. You know, if I don't get this medication, then there's going to be some problems because I'm, you know, I'm mentally ill. And so for me, that was my main concern.
2: Ernest should have left prison with Medicaid. Under Obamacare, 31 states have expanded Medicaid to cover most low-income adults, including ex-prisoners. The Medicaid expansion may or may not survive Republican promises to change Obamacare. But for now, if you get out of prison or jail in one of those 31 states... You know, there's slim chances that you wouldn't qualify for Medicaid. Dan Mistak says prisons and jails can sign people up for Medicaid while they're incarcerated, suspend it, and then activate it once they get out. Mistak is an attorney at Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services. And he says some states, like Colorado and California, are doing that. But that is, that is not the practice across the country. In an investigation, Kaiser Health News and the Marshall Project looked at how prison systems across the U.S. are dealing with this. Beth Schwartzeffel is a reporter with the Marshall Project.
4: What we found is a really mixed bag.
2: The Federal Bureau of Prisons in 16 states have no procedures to enroll inmates before release. And nine states only enroll certain prisoners, such as those with disabilities.
4: And then the remainder of the states are making a good faith effort. There's just so many ways that people can fall through the cracks.
2: For instance, Indiana has a system to apply for Medicaid on a prisoner's behalf. But the Marshall Project found that some of those released were left out. People like Ernest. The situation is more uncertain in local jails. where Rates of mental illness are even higher. The ones that do enroll people in Medicaid come up with their own process.
1: Who else needs paperwork?
2: Lieutenant Debbie Sullivan asks inmates to fill out Medicaid applications at the Marion County Jail in Indianapolis. She yells through the bars to a cell block of about a dozen women.
4: Ladies on that second page, it's going to ask for your first and last name and the last four of your social security
1: number in your date of birth.
2: Hinting out applications is step one, but a lot can still go wrong. Leaving prison or jail is a chaotic time. Ex-inmates need a place to live, a job, transportation. Indiana prison data show that only about half of released inmates follow up. And even fewer go on to actually get coverage. Part of Sarah Barham's job is to help mentally ill clients sign up for Medicaid. She works as a recovery coach in Indianapolis.
4: It can very much be a nightmare.
2: Even when she's there to help, it's overwhelming. Especially when someone's supply of medication disappears.
4: It's like a train wreck. You're just watching it. And so they get out in the community with all the other barriers and stressors they have. And now suddenly they're pulled off their medication, cold turkey, and expected to just hang in there.
2: Ernest did manage to hang in there, but just barely. A local clinic filled a prescription for free.
4: Just
3: like at the last minute, somebody managed to get things taken care of so that I was actually, you know, supplied with medication.
2: Then finally, he got Medicaid. He says he was lucky, but given his condition, he says it wasn't something that should have been left to chance. For NPR News, I'm Jake Harper.
1: For more on this investigation, go to NPR.org. The story is part of a reporting partnership with the Marshall Project, Kaiser Health News, and Side Effects Public Media.
0: That was a story from Side Effects Public Media's Jake Harper, who's also here at WFYI. We are talking about uh, post-incarceration medical care here on No Limits. My guests are Beth Schwartzapfel of The Marshall Project. She's joining us by Skype. Jay Hancock of Kaiser Health News and Linda Grove-Paul, who is Vice President of Adult Services for Centerstone Behavioral Health in Indiana. She's with us here in the studio. Welcome to all of you.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for Glad having to us. be here, John.
0: Certainly. It's good to have you with us. Beth, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what led you to dig into this story?
4: Uh, well, actually, it was Kaiser Health News who reached out to us. I, I've covered healthcare care uh, a lot uh, at the Marshall Project. So because we cover criminal justice exclusively, I am often looking at the intersection between health care and criminal justice. And we had sort of kicked around this idea of, uh, of Medicaid coverage for people coming out of prison and, uh, and it was Kaiser who first flagged the issue that said, um, look at all these people, especially in Medicaid expansion states that qualify for Medicaid but aren't getting signed up.
0: Jay, what, uh, I mean, what led you in that direction in the, in the first place? Because I'm not sure that's a natural progression that a lot of people would have. Were you getting anecdotal evidence, people calling you and, and saying this is a problem?
5: Yeah, we we heard about it anecdotally. We do a lot of we do a lot of work on healthcare disparities in low income areas. I've spent a lot of pretty much a lot of the last year and a half in uh Baltimore um writing about uh just the striking differences in uh healthcare between low income neighborhoods and well-off neighborhoods. And this sort of uh came over as a result of that. We were talking to lots of folks um in uh, a very, very poor neighborhood in West Baltimore about what their issues were, and this was one of them um, when you live um, in some of these communities, you're very likely to be uh, to cycle in and out of jail, out of prison for fairly trivial uh you know what are felonies, but for you know pretty uh, pretty low rate drug crimes. Possession small time dealing, and so what would happen is people who are chronically ill that 's the other point to make is that in these lower income neighborhoods, chronic illness illness in general is just mm-hmm. uh, much much higher than it is elsewhere um, when you 're chronically ill and cycling in and out of the system, um, you get these balls dropped all over the place and uh, one of the balls being dropped is Medicaid uh, enrollment because you're not eligible for Medicaid when you're inside. You're supposed to be eligible in these Obamacare-Medicaid expansion states when you get out, um, but it's not happening. And, and as I think we'll probably discuss uh, throughout the show, it's it's one ball of many that, that, that get dropped uh, to everybody's detriment.
0: Well, and I'm going to continue with you because it, it ultimately leads to Linda. What brought you in Indiana? What what led you to make Indiana a focus of your reporting?
4: Well, I think
1: that
0: was Beth's. Yeah, go Beth. No, uh, yeah, uh, Beth, please, and then I'll, I'll, I'll sure. pick up with Linda.
4: Well, uh, I want to make it clear, actually, to your listeners in Indiana that we weren't picking on Indiana, oh, per no. se, because it's doing uh, a if, particularly bad job.
0: If in I fact, implied that, I, it was clumsy phrasing. No,
4: not part. at all. Not at all. <laughs> I, um, we picked Indiana because it was a really good example of how a state can be making really a good faith effort to, to address this problem, to get folks enrolled in Medicaid on their way out of prison, Um, And yet how those good faith efforts can nevertheless result in many, many people who get out without coverage for a million tiny reasons.
0: Linda, how big a problem is this here in this state?
1: Well, I think to start with is, you know, as we talked about the Medicaid expansion, you know, Indiana only became an expansion state in the spring of last year. Um so we at Centerstone, uh, in terms of you know just talking about the the client population that's that's uninsured. Um, of our substance use population, uh, only 15% had any coverage prior to expansion, and now we're looking at, you know, closer to 70 to 75%. So basically, the vast majority of our people had no health care coverage and hadn't had any health care coverage uh, prior to that. So individuals who are coming out of uh, prison or, or jail, I mean, in terms of just talking about mental health meds, need, but just basic treatment needs, were, were really. Really great. Now, since the expansion has happened, um, you know, definitely more people are, are getting on care, but um, th- that's still, you know, it's still a challenge. And and the other piece of legislation that went through last year, which has only been a year, um, is requiring individuals who are incarcerated to enroll people into health insurance coverage. And that's huge. Um, And I think, you know, just kind of throughout that last piece, it hasn't been implemented perfectly, but I think we are still fairly early in that implementation phase.
0: If you are just joining us, we are talking about uh, prisoners who come out without health care coverage. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send an email to no limits at w f y i dot org find us on facebook at no limits WFYI, or track us down on twitter at w f y i linda i'm i'm gonna stay with you for a second and and just ask what were those you know before the expansion you said only fifteen percent mm-hmm. had coverage had access to insurance what were those eighty five percent doing. And, and presumably now the numbers just climbed to like 70, 75 percent, I think you said. So we've still got a quarter of the people out there who don't right. have it.
1: Well, I think as Jay talked about, you know, you have neighborhoods of individuals who are just cycling in and out of the criminal justice system um, for oftentimes very low-level crimes. Um, they may be drug offenses. Um, and they don't have any help in dealing with their co-occurring conditions, whether they have, you know, psychiatric issues or, you know, substance issues. So there really it wasn't much care. You know, the state has block grant funds that pay for some limited services, which we were providing. But, you know, those clients that we're working with were, were not getting the full array of services that would help them get better and prevent them from cycling in and out of the system.
0: So if they, uh, they weren't getting the services, what What were the effects of that? What was the impact?
1: The the impact is that, you know, you you have an increase in homelessness. You have an increase in, um, you know, communities that are dealing with individuals that are going in and out of the emergency room, going in and out of jail, huge increase in Department of Child Services population. You know, in the last couple of years, that's almost doubled, um, and that's been related to substance use. So, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of the consequences now in our population Related to not having health care previously. And we haven't been able to bend the cost curve yet because we're still so early in that.
0: In terms of uh, those, are the cyclical, were there any kind of stopgap things that they could do, or is it really they were, it was go to the emergency room or count on?
1: I mean, there were providers like Centerstone. I mean, you know, there are some providers who, again, were able to provide some services. We would apply for grants um, and use grants. But, no, I mean, you know, there there really has not been, you know, any kind of systemic stopgap measure for for those individuals other than incarceration and institutionalization. I mean, that's really where people ended up.
0: We are talking about uh, post-incarceration medical care. Uh, based on some recent coverage by uh, the Marshall Project and Kaiser Health News. My guests are Beth Schwartzapfel of the Marshall Project. She's joining us by Skype, and Jay Hancock of Kaiser Health News. They did the reporting, and Linda Grove Paul, who is with Centerstone Behavioral Health here in Indianapolis. I'm John Kroll. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're talking today about uh, post incarceration medical care. We're following up on uh, some sterling reporting by Beth Schwarzapfel of the Marshall Project and Jay Hancock of Kaiser Health News, both of whom are joining us, Beth, by Skype. And we're also talking with Linda Grove Paul, who's sort of on the front lines of of this question. She works for Centerstone Behavioral Health here in Indiana. Beth and Jay, I'm going to I'm going to throw this back to you. I mean, uh, Linda made clear what the stakes are uh, for the individuals. Why uh, this is a simple question, but I think it gets to the heart of it. Why is this, or why should this be? such a large public concern.
4: Well, this is Beth. I'll start by pointing out the um, public safety implications of what Linda just Mm -hmm. talked about. Um, If you have people who are out on the street committing crimes to feed their drug addiction um, or committing crimes as a result of uncontrolled mental illness, I don't think anybody in the community thinks that's an outcome that they would choose if given the choice. Um, that when when people's uh, mental health and addiction are not well controlled, it becomes a public safety issue for everybody.
0: Jay, is there a way to to put this into dollars and cents?
5: Not precisely, um, but plenty of studies have been done. Uh, Beth Beth put it very well. One of the your question to Linda was what happened before people had coverage. What mm-hmm. what went on? And people have actually studied that. Um, And one of the things that happens is people get out of prison or jail without coverage, and they die. Uh Um, There was a study in the Northwest that showed that in the two weeks after release from prison or jail, um, the people who are let out are a dozen times more likely to die than the general population. And that comes from – it comes from uh, just – uh, some of it is suicide, some of it is drug overdose, some of it is other chronic illness um, that's not controlled. That's not a dollar and cents measure. It is a measure of humanity. But in addition to um, the societal costs that Beth mentioned, um, we've also got people with communicable diseases coming out of prison and jail. Um, person for person, people, the incarcerated population, uh, are probably sicker than any other population you could put together and and measure. There's hepatitis C, there's HIV, there is diabetes, not communicable, but um, very serious cost to society. And what happened before was, without coverage, these folks are going to get taken care of one way or the other by the system. For some, it's too late, and they they don't get taken care of. But the vast majority of the rest end up in the emergency room. Hospitals are required to treat people when they show up at the ER by law, whether they have insurance or not. And that is the most expensive way to treat um, lots of these conditions. And so what the Medicaid expansion was supposed to do was to shift that care outside of the expensive setting in the hospital into the community, give people access to primary care, to doctors, to mental health clinics, prevent those emergency visits. It's better for them. It's cheaper to treat them. It saves taxpayers money. And uh, it was supposed to be a win-win. Now, we can talk about whether those facilities to do that community care are actually there. That's something that Beth and I kept running into. but that's really that's really the the cost benefit equation that it comes down to for policymakers.
0: How did you start the reporting on this? I mean, at what point? What what end? It, it sounds like there are a lot. Uh, it's almost like a maze. A lot of paths into this story. Which one did you start down first?
5: Um. I started talking to individuals, and this all started uh, a year ago. I was at a, a homeless shelter um, interviewing uh, just people uh, about their health care in generally. And I met two gentlemen who um, were just out of jail, um, were eligible for Medicaid under Maryland's uh, health expansion, and were having to go through ridiculous amounts of Red tape and runarounds and Rube Goldberg enrollment procedures to try to get the health care that um, they were entitled to under law, and it was really crazy. And that sort of led uh, from one thing to another. But um, I got to say, um, you know, that was that's sort of the uh, the, the micro level of uh, looking at it on the ground. The Marshall Project did some terrific work um, looking at the uh, the sky high level. And Beth can talk about that.
4: We call all 50 state departments of correction um, and sometimes their Medicaid offices, too, to find out what their enrollment procedures were. And it's just remarkable, the variability. Um, It's also I I will say to their credit, these are incredibly difficult um, bureaucratic puzzles uh, to solve. So one thing we heard a lot was, you know, the Medicaid, the Medicaid databases don't talk to the Department of Corrections databases. And so here were there are some some states where there's literally a person who's designated as the one to receive Medicaid applications from prison because they're the only one who knows how to do it correctly. And they're getting like paper envelopes in the mail with hand filled out Medicaid applications from the prisons. I mean, if you think about what a recipe that is for just mistakes and people falling through the cracks, um, and, and that's really what we found, you know, even in states that said, oh, yeah, we're enrolling people, uh, it's going great. You know, when you pushed a little harder and you asked for numbers, turns out maybe half of people getting out were actually getting enrolled uh, and and in fact, those were people, if you push even harder, that, that, that were applying, and then if you try to find out, well, how many of them actually got enrolled at the end of the day, so, so, m- most states didn't even know, and the ones that did know, that number was even smaller, so it, it's just um, remarkable what a bureaucratic tangle it is on every level.
0: And I probably ought, to, at this point, ought to do my standard disclosure. I, I spent six years as the executive director of the ACLU here. Somebody We'll point that out if I don't disclose it, because what I'm going to ask is based on on that question. How much of this is also a product of the fact that it's very hard to get um, the public to care about what happens to people in prison and to prisoners? I'm going to start with Linda on on that one, but I'd like to hear everyone's thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, stigma is a huge issue, and I think just the mentality of the way that we have approached uh, individuals who end up being incarcerated, you know, the war on drugs is certainly a large portion which has put us in this position. Um, But I do believe that... Education and information is absolutely paramount. Um, I, in the state of Indiana, uh, we really didn't have a lot of resources that were going to this population. And in the last, you know, couple of years, we've made significant inroads. In addition to the Medicaid expansion and requiring, you know, individuals who are incarcerated to be enrolled, uh, the state legislature um, appropriated 30 million dollars for a program that's called Recovery Works. And Recovery Works provides wraparound services to individuals who have a felony. Um, And so that enables us to go into jails, to work with people 30 days prior to their release, um, to help them get the services they need to navigate. You know, when you come back out, oftentimes, you know, you don't have any friends, you don't have any housing, you don't have transportation, you don't have just the basic needs. Um, So, and and those applications can be cumbersome and difficult. So we've had to do a lot of education. um, And I think the public has been very responsible at least the legislature has. But we have to continue to really push this conversation, which is why this article is so important.
0: Beth.
4: Yeah, actually, your question made me think of a tweet I got in the days after the story came out, which said, yes, worry about prison inmates and illegal immigrants and attack God loving Christians. Uh, <laughs> our story didn't mention immigrants, by the way, but still, uh, that's kind of a we get that's a pushback. Or God loving well, Christians,
0: as I recall <laughs> right. when I read it. Um,
4: well, That's a pushback we get at the Marshall Project all the time. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. why should prison yeah. inmates get, you know, you name it, any service you can possibly think of education, uh, jobs when when people on the outside have to struggle for those kind of things. And, you know, on a on a sort of emotional level, especially, you know, in in uh, in a country where people are g- genuinely struggling, uh, that sort of approach makes sense. But the truth is, even from a dollars and cents perspective, Mm -hmm. providing services like this to people coming out of prison is actually better for everybody for all the reasons that we outlined. So, you know, while it may frustrate people that their access to health insurance or health coverage is is challenging and that, you know, it's maybe simpler or more readily accessible for somebody coming out of prison. The truth is everyone benefits when people coming out of prison get the care they need to prevent them from. From committing more crimes,
0: Jay
5: and the crimes are arguably small potatoes um, um, I've spent most of my journalism career writing about finance and economics and interviewing uh, business tycoons and um, having spent the last eighteen months um, in low income neighborhoods and talking to people there and and seeing what happens there was quite an eye-opener for me. Um, The other dollars and cents equation um, beyond uh, investing money to save money after people get out um, is stopping locking people up in the first place. The country spends billions of dollars a year um, locking people up as a result of the war on drugs, and that money could be spent so much more productively by treating people in the community. This is a conversation that's uh, you know been going on for 20 years, um, but it's the other part of uh, of the financial equation. We talk about people say, oh, you know, you're giving benefits to to criminals. Um, well, they're criminals for um, you know really entrenched, long standing. Difficult to change reasons um, that in many cases go back to slavery. And um, they need to be looked at as people as well.
0: We are talking about uh, what happens when people come out of prison or jail and they do not have insurance or access to health care coverage. If you would like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866 476. 3881. You can send an email to Limits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. So I'm going to start and I want everybody's thoughts on this too. It sounds like even though we've made strides here in Indiana, um, we're still only at about a 70-75% success rate, which in, you know, most grading systems is at best to see. Um, and that there are other parts of the country that aren't doing that well, some parts that are doing better. So this is not a fully functioning system. What are some things that could be done to make it function better? Beth, I'll start with you.
4: Sure. If we're talking specifically about enrolling people as they come out of prison, um, the, the, the most uh, successful programs do two things. The first is they have, they have figured out a way to make the, the corrections databases and the Medicaid databases talk to each other so that there's this step that many states require, which is that uh, people get uh, their applications in uh, to Medicaid before they leave prison. Uh, but there's no way to alert the Medicaid system that they've been released and that their care needs to be activated. That's on them. Um, so it, Indiana actually just, just this last month eliminated this requirement, but until last month, people had to actually call the Medicaid office when they got out uh, to activate their own coverage, which sounds really simple, but for somebody who's just gotten out of prison that may not have a phone, that may not be able to pay for minutes, that is dealing with you know very basic human needs like food and shelter, um, that phone call is just one thing too many. Um, and so when states can, automate this process, so the DOC automatically alerts Medicaid when somebody's been released, and you eliminate that step, you lose a lot less people. The other thing that a handful of really progressive states are doing is they're not just applying for people, they actually complete the process so they leave prison with their Medicaid card in hand. And if it's working really well, these people have already been told, here are the doctors in your area that take Medicaid. Here are the doctors in your area who specialize in what needs you have. Um, And so people get out with an active Medicaid card and they get out with the resources they need to use it well.
0: What states are those?
4: Um, the two that we stumbled on in our reporting were Colorado and California. Um, I know Jay uh, d- discovered that Ohio had implemented a system somewhat like that in the in the in the recent days and weeks, and I know Louisiana, um, which expand was has is the most recent state to expand Medicaid, is. Uh, announced that it's launching a program like that on January 1st. I spoke to them over the summer, and they were working on building it. These things take time, so uh, that looks like it's coming down the pike.
0: So, Jay, since your background is in finances, um, what has been the impact in those states? Have we seen that that it actually does make tremendous inroads in dealing with this problem?
5: It's too early to tell. Um, It's really... uh... As Linda pointed out, in a lot of these states, the Medicaid expansion is pretty new. So they're still trying to figure out how to do this, and it's really complicated. It's you know, It doesn't sound like a big deal. You sign somebody up for Medicaid, and they're in. But uh, I think listeners are starting to get the idea that it's a lot more complicated than that. One step that we didn't mention is um, most states, I dare say, these days um, – Outsource their Medicaid uh, care management to uh, HMOs,
0: mm-hmm.
5: um, basically privatize the the Medicaid, and so you get health insurance companies that we've all heard of, like a Blue Cross plan, or like United Healthcare, or like Coventry, and they'll actually manage the care delivered to the low income Medicaid members uh, in a particular state. And one of the things we ran into was. Even if you're enrolled in the state government Medicaid system, you might not be signed up for a Medicaid HMO, and that involves another crazy step. So um, another thing we should mention is that Mm -hmm. a lot of states are sort of claiming success. There's a lot of press releases coming out and a few uh, news stories being written that maybe didn't ask enough questions about these efforts to enroll people, quote-unquote programs are being set up to enroll people. When you dig into them, you find that the people who are actually um, getting a Medicaid card and being connected to care is a lot less than whatever percentage somebody might give you. And something, you know, that we should talk about, and, and Linda can speak to this really well, I bet, is the capacity of community caregivers to take care of people once they get out. There seems to be a, you know, a super shortage of just doctors and therapists um, and nurse practitioners to take care of
0: people, to even get an appointment. Linda, I think that's your cue.
1: Yeah, you know, I I guess I just want to mention before we, we get into that is that a lot of these people in Indiana that come out have Only basic health care. They don't have those more extensive plans that cover the kinds of things that oftentimes these people need. So as soon as they come out, they need to have not only their – they have to be able to produce some documents that oftentimes are very difficult for them um, to get the basic care, and then they need the more complicated – Um, Also, our folks just aren't used to having health care. A lot of them have received their health care through the the ED. um, And so it's just really important to
4: ensure that they are getting into service.
0: We are talking.
4: Excuse me, just to speak to what real quickly, Beth,
0: we're headed toward a break.
4: Oh, I was just going to say I got an email from a somewhat indignant uh, DOC official uh, whose state that will remain nameless at the moment. We characterize as having a very small, limited uh, enrollment program. He said, well, for everybody else, we give them the applications. We give them an envelope and a stamp, which we pay for, um, and that was sort of their version of an enrollment program. So that, that's a, a good example of what Jay was talking about.
0: We are talking about post-incarceration medical care. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism. Publisher of the statehousefile.com and your host. We're talking about uh, what happens when prisoners uh, come back out into this, this world without access to medical care or health insurance, what it costs them and what it costs us. Um, we're following on some reporting by the Marshall Project and Kaiser Health News. My guests are Beth Schwartz-Zapfel of the Marshall Project, she's joining us by Skype, and Jay Hancock of Kaiser Health News. Also joined by Linda Grove Paul, who is Vice President of Adult Services for Centerstone Behavioral Health here in Indiana and is on the front lines of the problem. Beth, before we went to the break, I was sort of forcing you to rush through a point you were trying to make. I wanted to give you a chance to take a breath and actually not be sprinting toward the, the tape
4: Oh no! I just wanted to make the. I just wanted to reinforce the point that Jay made, which is that um, it's it's very hard to set up an effective program, and there are lots of places that sort of pat themselves on the back for setting up a program, but if you push a little harder, uh, it becomes clear that it's really a program in name only.
0: Well, uh, and what I am hearing, what I saw in the story too, is that there is a tremendous amount of confusion about this, and it's difficult to implement the. The systems vary um, from from state to state, and that is, you know, several years following the the adoption and implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump and members of Congress have said uh, that they'd like to, in some cases, they say they they want to. Uh, Get rid of the Affordable Care Act, and other places they're just saying that they want to greatly um, alter it or reform it. Which strikes me that that uh, you know that's potential for still more confusion. Could you and I'll start with Jay on this one? Could you talk about whether there are levels of anxiety um, dealing with this, and what we might anticipate would be possibly some consequences?
5: Yeah, there's 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 lots of anxiety in in lots of areas of health care um because uh President elect Trump uh has pledged uh to repeal and replace uh Obamacare and the Medicaid expansion that we're talking about um was a you know really uh big piece of uh of Obamacare. Obamacare uh ended up uh, covering an extra 20 million or so folks, and maybe 15 million of those were uh, on the Medicaid expansion for for low income. There's a lot of questions, um, a lot of apprehension, but nobody really knows uh, what's what's going to happen. It's a guessing game here in Washington from day to day um, whether um, uh, Congress and uh, President-elect Trump want to actually repeal – Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, as soon as they can and make it effective. A lot of people think they're going to repeal it in name and then uh, set a timer. Um, you know, they'll they'll basically grandfather it for two or three years and then figure out what's going to replace it um, as that time elapses. But nobody really knows. The best we can say right now about Medicaid expansion and about coverage for uh, ex-prisoners is that um a um a few uh, a decent amount of Republican governors have expanded Medicaid. Um and so there is a constituency um among uh the some of the states uh among Republicans and they're going to um make themselves heard uh in Washington the um, the Medicaid financing mechanism that Republicans uh, often talk about are what's called block grants, um, which is uh, a fancy way of saying um, we'll take you, state of Texas or Colorado, and we will give you uh, a fixed amount of money to pay for your Medicaid program. Um, Republicans like that because it, it you know what it's going to cost. Um, you won't get cost overruns. Medicaid programs um, uh, in, uh, in many blue states are um, pretty generous with their benefits. They don't have a top end for what it might cost. And um, so the thinking is that maybe Medicaid expansion will survive in some form. Um, but it's probably going to look like a block grant. It's probably going to have a hard cap on it, and it's probably going to be less generous than it is now. And what that means for... um people coming out of, of jails and prison is, is, is kind of a guess right now. The best guess is that this, this kind of coverage will remain in some form, in, 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 in some name uh, in the future, more than it was before Obamacare was passed in 2010 and took effect in 2014. But how much, to what degree, we just don't know.
0: Beth, is there any likelihood that uh, that the process will be simplified then, for these prisoners so that they can, uh, you know, access health care in a way that's more comprehensible to them?
4: I don't think anything that Republicans could do in the coming administration would make the process simpler for people on the ground. I think, if anything, it would make uh, the financials more of a headache for the the folks in the administration buildings. But I think, you know, Medicaid is Medicaid, and, and especially— um, if we move towards privatization which is uh you know a, a a darling of uh of the right um we'll see more of these uh HMO style medicaid programs which if anything is is more of an administrative uh hurdle for folks to get over
0: Linda uh, since you are working on the front lines for this uh and you deal with the, with the people who are most directly affected by it all the time as an exercise here, I'm going to <laughs> hypothetically, or at least in, in construct of this conversation, give you the powers of the president, Congress, and the <laughs> courts all together. How would you design a system that would, would, make, would make sense?
1: You know, that's a really tough question, and I I would guess maybe I'm too close to the ground because I have been, you know, living the Indiana life, trying to fight for, you know, kind of every inch um, that we have had. I know Indiana... Um, you know, as an example, has, you know, tried to design a system where they have some personal responsibility, you know, kind of they talk about skin in the game where, you know, clients have to pay a small copay. Um, but I think that um, in Indiana, there has been some real success. I know, you know, actually, just in talking to the Indiana Medicaid director today, you know, in anticipation of coming on is, you know, they've enrolled, Twenty twenty six thousand inmates since July, since the started of last year um, and saved two point one million dollars on inpatient hospitalization. So I think going back to what Jay was saying is, you know, the only way you're going to really design a program that you're going to be able to sell is you have to be able to, to show financially that it works. Um, and I think, you know, as Beth talked about, you know, the number of people who are homeless in our communities, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why, um, you know, so many people, middle class um, in our country is upset is that they they are really struggling themselves. And they see that their communities are continuing to, to fall. And I think healthcare is the key and particularly focusing on this demographic is so important. Um, so I think, you know, you design a system that's s- much simpler. I love Beth suggestions i think you know having that that data talking to one another and having that full application as people come out and then directly passed off to a service provider. I mean, I think that's the other piece that's really often missing. So many people fall through the cracks because they don't have immediate access to care. Um, and I, I suppose then that's answering Jay's question in terms of the number of service providers. Um, and there's no mm-hmm. doubt that there is a shortage of service providers. Um, and, you know, in Indiana, I think when Pew had done a report a few years ago, we were, you know, at the bottom. Um, and I argued that in large part it was because nobody Nobody was paying for any services, so why would you have people come into the field um, if you don't have any reimbursement? So I think you know, kind of, if you build it, they will come. Um, and we do need more service providers because there is a dramatic shortage.
0: Is this and I, and I, I ask the question, um, understanding that there are constitutional problems <laughs> with what I'm about to ask and all, all of that. But it, it, it sounds like at least part of the problem is that, that so much of this falls at the state level True. when it is a problem that is national in in scope is there a way to solve this at uh, the federal government level um, that would take some of the guesswork out from state to state Jay I'll throw that one to you first
5: um, uh, in a fantasy world yes <laughs> um, uh, in your uh, in your yeah. hypothetical construct here I don't know yeah. th- to what account you want to take uh, of politics uh, <laughs> well, if we bring uh as well as the constitution but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh it's you know the the um, uh, it's not well known uh, but there were people on the left who um were unhappy with obamacare um hmm. there's still uh, uh some true believers out there that think that what america needs is um what's known as a single payer health system uh which is jargon speak for basically it can mean a lot of things um but basically a more unified health system run by the Fed, run from run from washington um w- getting rid of the seams and silos between the states um that's not going to happen um for a long time if ever um medicaid is still um uh, a state program even though washington pays for most of it states value their independence you know there are even progressives Mm -hmm. out there who are federalists when it comes to medicaid because they want to make their medicaid program above average better than uh what's being required by washington and i think you're always going to have these borders and these handoff problems uh the the key is to try to smooth them over, get the computers in the Medicaid, the state health department to talk to the computers in the state prison system, um, somehow figure out how to smooth these these gaps with um, signing up for the the private Medicaid HMOs that uh, are getting bigger and bigger, figure out a way um, to make sure people have id when they leave prison one thing we haven't talked about is that when people spend a long time in prison they they essentially lose their identities mm-hmm. um they become invisible to um all the computer systems that recognize you as a person um some states use uh use credit records to establish your identity um you know We're all, you know, we've all got files in Equifax. They know who we are. They know everything about us, except if you're a prisoner. Mm -hmm. You haven't bought anything. You don't have a credit card. You haven't spent anything for ten years. You're invisible. People lose their ID cards. So one of the, you know, million steps that people have to go through is they have to apply for a social security card. They have to get a state driver's license or some kind of comparable state ID. And it's just all these nutty systems, and a lot of people are working on it. But, um, uh, And Beth and I, you know, I have to say we did see some progress. Even while we were reporting on, on this, we saw states getting things up and going, a lot of people trying to do the right thing. But it's just really
0: complicated. Beth, you wanted to jump in.
4: Yeah, I'll also say that um, one thing that Washington can do and does do uh, is provide financial incentives for states to do the right thing. So with Medicaid expansion, you know the feds will pay ninety percent of uh, of the cost of Medicaid coverage for uh, for states that expand. And the fact that there are still nineteen states that said no, thank you, you're essentially offering to pay for uh, med- our Medicaid program. In its entirety, um, is really all about politics, um, and the same can be said for, you know, the the Medicaid, uh, the the National Medicaid Department uh, also offers grants to help states cover administrative costs, and that includes they will help pay for prisons and jails that want to set up effective programs to uh, to get people enrolled on their way out. There are Medicaid grants available to cover that. I think that's a less known fact. A lot of prison administrators don't know that. But a lot of states just, you know, this is such a political issue. Obamacare is such a political issue that know that there are, that there are many Republican uh, politicians who just don't want to be associated with it, regardless of whether it would actually cost the state any money or save the state money.
0: Is, is that, uh, when you say it's such a political issue, obviously the whole issue of criminal justice and, and prisoners' rights does that add to um, the political tension, Beth?
4: I mean, I will say that uh, there are more and more Republicans who are recognizing that our criminal justice system, as it stands, is not, uh, does not embody conservative values. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about what are conservative values, you talk about fiscal responsibility. You talk about small government. Well, if you look at prisons and jails in the United States, it's neither, um, our criminal justice system is a huge, huge uh, black hole for money, for tax dollars, and it's also a huge government intrusion into, uh, you know, a- average Americans' uh, per- civil liberties and, and, and personal freedoms. And so I think more and more, even those on the right um, are starting to recognize that something has to change in our criminal justice system. And that's why you, th- you see movement on this issue in places like Texas, mm-hmm. where there's a very active organization called Right on Crime, um, that's made a lot of headway with, with some Republican uh, lawmakers.
0: Linda, uh, we've talked about all of the ways the system is not working mm-hmm. here. Um, since you are on the front lines, could you maybe leave us with uh, an example of a place where when the system did work, it made a difference in someone's life? When when someone came out and was able to access the kind of care mm-hmm. he or she needed what what impact did that have?
1: Yeah, um, you know, we, we work with uh, a couple of different mental health courts, one here in Marion County and one in, in Monroe County. Um, and, you know, folks who are are coming out, um, just like in the, the segment before, you have individuals who have received their medication prior to being discharged. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes then when they leave – prison, um, they don't have medication. And so it's really important to communicate, to be working with them, to say, you know, we've, we've got to get this person on medication. You need to tell us six weeks ahead of time so that we can have an appointment with the psychiatrist. So we've had lots of situations where we had people who are chronically homeless um not able to get the services you know they'd come out immediately they they went to a homeless shelter and now because we have have some reach in dollars we're able to go in meet with them, do some planning, determine where their housing is going to be. Um, You know, if maybe it's an opiate person who's dealing with opiate addictions, um, work on getting their first Vivitrol shot, which is an anti-craving medication prior to their release, set up housing, work on transportation. So we have, you know, several examples of programs that are really working to help Individuals be successful, um, start employment, employment-based programs. So, um, I'm hopeful that things have changed for the better. They've also done a lot of decriminalizing in Indiana, which has been, you know, a, a big fix.
0: I feel like we could have done at least another hour on this, <laughs> but unfortunately, we're out of time. I'd like to thank my guests, Beth Schwartzapple, Jay Hancock, and Linda Grove Paul, for what has been an illuminating conversation. I'm John Kroll, You've been listening to No Limits. Thank you for joining us.
1: No Limits is a production of 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Indianapolis. Executive producer Michelle Johnson. Producer Shannon Cagle. Interactive media coordinator Scott McAllister. Technical producers Cedric Freeman and Chris Flood. And board engineer Joe Hatcher. Abby Cherzini screens our calls. No Limits is made available through IPBS, Indiana's public broadcasting stations.